Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon and find with me chapter 5. We'll be looking at chapter 5, verse 2 through chapter 6, verse 3 this evening. This morning I mentioned uh, that we had taken a a two-week hiatus from our time in 1 Peter as we had a couple of guest preachers come and fill the the pulpit in the morning, Dr. John Curry and Pastor Paul Molner from Georgia, and we also were delighted to receive the Word of God from two preachers in evening worship as well. Dr. Curry preached for us that first Sunday that he was here, and our own uh, Terry Crayon, a reverend, an ordained minister in our denomination, preached for us last Sunday evening, and I just want to encourage you, if you were not here, to listen to the sermons that you missed and be encouraged in your heart by the Word of God as it was presented to us by these faithful men of God. Well, let me pray, and then we're going to read our text this evening, Song of Songs 5, 2 through 6, 3, uh, and then we'll take a look at it together for the remainder of our time in worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your Word, indeed a somewhat tricky, difficult part of your Word, we acknowledge that there are multiple interpretations and approaches that have been taken to this song, and we ask that you would guard and guide us by your Spirit, that we might divide your Word faithfully, that we might understand it properly, that we might apply it accurately and faithfully to our own lives, Lord. Help us to grow in Christ, in our love for Him, and in our love for each other, especially as it relates to marriage, which this text seems so clearly to be about. Speak, Lord, we pray. We are listening and eager to hear from you tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Song of Songs, (coughs) excuse me, chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. This is the woman speaking. Uh, Hopefully your Bible has some um, all capitals there, she and the others perhaps. Uh, in this text to help you understand who's talking as we go through it together. If not, I'll, I'll make some explanatory comments as we work through the text. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch. My heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that thus you adjure us? My beloved, beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs, 
His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewelry. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Well, this ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. It's been said that you shouldn't meet your heroes. If you do, you can be sure of disappointment. It was once said of George Washington, I believe by the Marquis de Lafayette, that he was of the sort of character that the closer you got to him, the more you respected him. And the implication of a statement like that, of course, is that the closer you get to most people, the more flaws you see, the more reason you have not to respect them. The makeup isn't as beautiful as it might have looked from a distance. The mask isn't as perfect as it might have appeared from far away. And so they say not to meet your heroes, they will most certainly leave you disappointed. Well, the same is true of marriage. I often tell couples in premarital counseling, congratulations, you're a sinner marrying another sinner. And everything that that entails, you need to reconcile with. Sincerely, marriage is wonderful, but it's also difficult. And if you think that marriage is about finding that perfect person, you've made a grave mistake. Marriage is not about finding that one perfect person. It's about finding that one imperfect person that you'll need to forgive over and over and over and over again, and from whom you'll need to ask forgiveness over and over and over and over again. In other words, marriage is not some peaceful shore of bliss where we and our beloved sit in easy chairs, sipping on brightly colored drinks as we watch the sunset. Rather, it's a lifelong pursuit of the one you love. It's a covenant commitment to work through conflict and to pursue peace. It's a promise to be big with forgiveness and quick with repentance. It's an agreement that we won't weaponize the beautiful parts of our marriage but will rather outdo one another in showing honor because of Christ. You see, marriage is a living parable of Christ in the church. And while Jesus never has to come to us in repentance, he's always big with forgiveness towards us, isn't he? He's always pursuing us, even when we sometimes give him the cold shoulder. On our passage this evening, we see the difficulties of marriage in raised relief. This lovesick couple who just two chapters ago confirmed their marriage vows and one chapter ago consummated their marriage in joy now can't even find their way into the same room together. We find the husband out in the dark while his wife weaponizes their intimacy out of some unspoken frustration. But when the Spirit convicts her, notice, she runs after reconciliation. 
Of course, our hope in marriage is not to need to run after reconciliation after treating each other poorly, but the goal of marriage as it's displayed in this text is joy in the Lord. And this evening I want to highlight three realities about the difficulties of marriage that this text warns us about and instructs us in help with overcoming. First of all, in the first two verses, verses 2 through 4a, we see, and this is uh, the most technical title, sermon, a bullet point that I could come up with, marital difficulties can make us act crazy. Number two, in verses 4b through 16 through the remainder of chapter 5, we'll see that repentance is the key to marital restoration. And then finally, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, we discover that the covenant is foundational to marital joy. So if you've been married for some time or any time, you know that marital difficulties can make us act crazy, can't they? This is a dream scene. We find uh, our Shulamite woman, the bride here, the bride of Solomon, uh, she's having a dream. It tells us that I slept, but my heart was awake. I slept, but my mind was racing. Remember that in Hebrew poetry, the heart is the seat of our thinking. It's, it's really your guts, your, your bowels, it says, is the seat of your emotions, but your heart is the seat of your thinking and of your willing. And it's the idea that she's falling asleep, she's tired at the end of the day, but her mind is churning over some issue, over some stress in her marriage. Isn't this the way it is when we're living in sin or in conflict with somebody else? That we try to go to sleep at night, we lay down and close our eyes, but our minds won't stop spinning over that problem. How can I resolve it? What's that conversation going to look like when it finally happens? And some of us are really guilty of this, we quickly hop on the imagination train and imagine where it might go. If they say this, then I'll respond like this. And if they do that, then I'm going to respond like this. And our minds just constantly churn in anxiety over sin or conflict. And sometimes this happens when we're dreaming, doesn't it? Have you experienced a recurring dream before? Some, some dream that plagues you night after night or week after week, that has a bit of a backstory that you know deep down what the backstory is. Some of you young people, you ever have a dream where you worry that you didn't finish your homework on time, uh, but the due date has come upon you rather rapidly, and you just don't know how you're going to finish it? Uh, or perhaps you get a test, and the teacher walks by, or your parent walks by, and they put the test on your table, on your desk, and you look down at it, and to your horror, you realize that it's written in a different language, or perhaps, and I may be the only one here, you dream that you get to church and walk into the pulpit and realize that you left your notes at home. The point is that in many cases we dream these nightmarish outcomes of things that we're actually upset or worried about. And in the examples I just gave, perhaps it's unpreparedness or laziness or busyness that keeps us from accomplishing the tasks we're meant to do. And it costs us good sleep. Because while my mind is trying to go to sleep, my heart is churning with fear. And this is the case in the marital strife we see here in the Song of Songs. <laughs> whether she's upset by something he did or whether she just won't admit that she did something wrong, we don't know. But the reality is that it's bothering her and it's costing her sleep. Now, in this case, the way that the, the song is written 
it portrays her as the one who will respond coldly to her husband's advances. But please don't miss the fact that these roles can easily be reversed in every situation. This is not an indictment against women who turn a cold shoulder to their husbands, but men are always chivalrous and trying to open the door to the bedroom. That's not what it's telling us. This could go either way. It just so happens that this is the way these characters approach the situation, okay? But here we find she has gone to bed. She's laying down and falling asleep. Her mind is churning over some difficulty. But Solomon comes and appeals to her to let her in, let him in. He wants her to keep their marriage full of joy and full of intimacy and full of peace, to keep the passion alive and maintain their marriage bed. Look at verses 2 and 3. We find him knocking on the door. And listen to the way he speaks to her. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. He uses four descriptions to describe or to demonstrate his affection for her. He even appeals to his situation. I'm out here in the cold. My head is wet with dew and my hair with the drops of the night. It's late and I want to come inside and I want to be with you. He's speaking tenderly to her in the midst of conflict, in the midst of some difficulty. But she ignores him. And in fact, the excuses that she gives in verse 3 are pretty pathetic. Look at what she says in verse 3. I had already taken my robe off. Should I really put my robe back on to come open the door? I mean, how much trouble are you really asking me to go to here? Um, this This is my favorite. I've already washed my feet. How can I get them dirty traipsing across this floor to come unlock the door for you? This is, it's your fault you're out there anyway. This is the ancient Near Eastern version of, I have a headache. That's what she's saying to him. He wants to come to bed. He wants to restore their relationship. He wants to experience intimacy. And she, not out of legitimate exhaustion, not out of a, a legitimate fast from intimacy, which Paul commends in 1 Corinthians 7, but out of a weaponization of the marriage bed says, I've got all the excuses lined up. I'm, there's no way I'm opening the door for you. She ignores him. She shuts him out of her bed. She makes him beg to love his own wife. And remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, do not deprive one another except by agreement and only for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then he gives the reason why it's only a limited time. He says, come back together again quickly so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul knows that we will tend to make the, take the most beautiful and intimate parts of marriage and hold them over each other as bargaining chips. And that's what we see this woman doing in the Song of Songs in chapter 5. Let me ask you, is there anything less Christ-like than holding a beautiful gift from God over the head of your spouse as a bargaining chip? Is there anything less Christ-like than that? God loved us so much that He gave His Son for us. Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us, how will He not also give us all things in Christ? Yet we don't spare our spouses sometimes in conflict the humiliation of having to ask for intimacy and then turning them away with a cold shoulder. 
how foolish we are, both with one another in marriage. It makes us crazy, doesn't it? Conflict makes us crazy. It makes us do foolish things. But also, we act this way with Christ sometimes. Maybe later, Jesus. I can't be bothered now. I'm too young, and I'm having too much fun. I'm afraid of what it'll cost me if I really let you in, and I just don't feel like having that level of a relationship with you yet. Come back to me when I'm older, and maybe then I'll repent and believe. We might discover, like the Shulamite woman does in verse 6, that he's turned and gone away. Young people, don't toy with God's offer for salvation. He puts it before you. He knocks on the door of your heart and says, let me in, my beloved. I long for you. I love you. I'm here to be with you. And sometimes we say, not now. I'm not ready for that. I know that if you are to be Lord of my life, it's going to cost me friendships. It's going to cost me some things I think will be fun. It's going to cost me the freedom to participate in activities and do things that I really have my heart set upon. I'm going to stiff arm you for now. Come back to me later. And we presume upon God's mercy and patience that he might still be knocking when we think we're ready. Notice in verse 4, though, Solomon continues to try to pursue her. My beloved put his hand to the latch. The idea is really that in these old uh, doors that would be in in a house in Israel, there would be a hole that he might be able to reach his hand in and try to unlatch the door from the outside. And so he's literally fighting to get into the room, trying to be close to his beloved. In the midst of this conflict, he puts his hand to the latch and tries to come in. And of course, we know that he doesn't get in the room, but there's two things I want you to notice about his response to her cold shoulder. First of all, he doesn't retaliate. Men and women, please hear me say that again. In the midst of conflict, he does not retaliate. This is no different than what we've been seeing in First Peter, is it? That when Jesus was reviled, he did not respond with reviling. How easy is it for us in our sinful pride to have someone treat us poorly and respond by treating them in kind? We believe that the best way to fight fire is with fire. We've been trained to think that way. But this man doesn't. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't start yelling through the door at her. He doesn't stoop down and start calling her nasty names. He just keeps knocking, jiggles the door handle to remind her that he was there waiting for her. In fact, some commentators believe when it says in verse 5 that I arose to open the door, my fingers were dripping with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt, that he had poured perfume on the door handle to remind her of a symbol of his love. That she would know as soon as she laid hold of the door, don't forget, I'm waiting for you. I still love you. But the second thing that he does that's worth noting is he just goes back about his business. He knows that it's God's timing, that his schemes to cause her to respond to him in repentance and humility aren't going to work. He simply goes back to entrusting the relationship to the Lord. Uh, He's doing what he ought to be doing. And there's a danger in marriage that when one partner holds out, or acts abusively or cold or difficult, that the other will find someone else to take care of their needs. 
This is Paul's warning in 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Don't hold out from each other lest you give in to temptation. Now, this doesn't, of course, excuse men or women who seek affection in the arms of someone outside of marriage or in pornography or something like that. But the reality that this is portraying for us is that Solomon, in the midst of conflict, doesn't run to those things. He doesn't say, I'm not being satisfied at home in my bed. I'm going to go find satisfaction elsewhere. Instead, he trusts the Lord to work. We know this because our last point, which we'll see in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, we find Solomon exactly where he should be in the garden. He waits for his beloved to open up to him. We don't find him hanging around the temple prostitutes, and we also don't find him sitting at the local bar grumbling with his buddies about how difficult his wife is. Rather, he waits for the Lord. He goes about his business. He trusts his covenant relationship. But conflict in marriage can make us crazy, can't it? Well, in verse 4, in the second half of verse 4, we begin to see a shift in her attitude. She begins the process of repentance. She realizes that she does want him, she does love him, and so begins her pursuit of reconciliation. Look at verse 4b. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh. I opened to my beloved, but he had gone and turned, and my soul failed within me. I felt like I was dying, it says. She realizes that she's made a mistake. She'd been so stubborn that she didn't get up in the first place when she had a chance to repair the marriage originally, and now her stubbornness has led to more struggle. The point is very simple. Failure to repent and forgive when the opportunity arises only makes the situation worse. When God in His mercy gives us opportunities to repent and offer forgiveness, we must lay hold of them quickly, run to the door and open it, and restore the relationship. But now she's devastated by the compounding problem of her situation, one which she had made worse by her failure to act. And how often do we do this in marriage? There's a conflict that rises up, tension rises up, uh, distance begins to be formed between us. And when one person starts to make those moves towards the other, the one who feels offended isn't ready yet to offer forgiveness. Or the one who's been offended, the, the one who's doing the offense isn't ready to come ask for forgiveness. And the problem only compounds. So in her dream now, because of the stress of this situation... She runs about the town looking for him, but she's only found by the watchman who previously had been there to help her, to help her find her beloved, and now they treat her shamefully, don't they? Now look at what it says, and, and we need to explain this in verse 7. The watchman found me as they went about in the city. They beat me and bruised me and took away my veil. Now, let me explain. What happens here, this is not an actual event. Remember, this is a dream scene that we're witnessing here in this section of the Song of Songs. What's happening here is not that she was actually beaten by some men who were on guard in the city, but rather her conscience is reminding her that she can't get off that easy from her sinful behavior. And she feels kind of beat up by the situation. 
Think about the contrast that's being painted. She had refused to allow her husband to enjoy a lawful sexual relationship. And so now in her dream, she's treated by the guardians of the city as one who participates in unlawful sexual relationships. In other words, she's treated like a prostitute. She's out at night in the city. What do they remove from her? It says, my veil. The idea is like my thin robe that I throw over my shoulders in the evening. It's kind of ironic that when her husband wanted to come into bed, she wouldn't put her robe on to come open the door for him. And now that he's gone, she throws her little nightgown on, and as she runs around the city, the watchmen strip it off her. And she's left in her shame because she's refused to repent and to exercise faithfulness and kindness in her marriage. This is not a prescription for how people who are sexually unfaithful or unkind in marriage ought to be treated. That's not what Solomon is giving us here. Remember, it's a dream, but it is descriptive of how our consciences treat us when we've been acting sinfully in marriage. We find ourselves oftentimes suffering according to our foolishness. And please hear me say this. That is a mercy from God when we experience this sort of nighttime turmoil because of our sins. God wants us to repent and seek forgiveness and peace in marriage. And sometimes he lets us experience the hidden evils of our hearts that we might grow in grace and love in every way. I want to read to you some of the lyrics of one of my favorite hymns. Many of you know that John Newton is my favorite hymn writer. And in his hymn, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow, he says this, it starts off with this delightful prayer to God. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It was him that taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, will answer prayer. But it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. Well, that's taken a turn, hasn't it? I ask God to help me grow in love and grace, but now I find myself in despair. I had hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Lord, help me to stop sinning. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Blasted all the fair designs I'd schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? It's in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free, to break your schemes of earthly joy that you might find your all in me. It's a mercy from God when we experience the torment of a conscience that's been seared because of sin. And as this Shulamite woman realizes the lack of repentance and failure of repentance in her dream, she chases her beloved around the streets and instead she is treated shamefully. The Lord is exposing to her her sin and calling upon her to change her heart and repent. Friends, have you been acting crazy in marriage? 
failing to show love and honor and respect and kindness and tenderness and forgiveness, failing to repent when you have sinned. This text in the Song of Songs compels us to not let the crazy get away from us. Don't let conflict in marriage grow into this sort of reality where it's no longer a dream, but we find ourselves chasing after someone who has turned and gone. And there's some application for us in the church too, isn't there? We don't know what caused this argument between Solomon and his wife. Perhaps it was something small. Perhaps it was just a distraction. You remember back in chapter 2, they talk about the little foxes that threaten the garden, that threaten to get in between them and create division. But it grew into such an issue that they have nearly lost their love. And in the church, we often do this. We let little distractions creep in and get in the way of our first love, don't we? We focus on things that are adjacent to Christ or sub, uh, 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 lesser of importance than Christ in His gospel. Even as Eric read in our Scripture reading, we allow something other than the gospel proclaimed to us to take precedence and priority in our church, and we find ourselves cold to Christ as we let the busyness of church and the distractions of life or the little sins that we hide in our hearts without repenting to quench the flame of passion for Him. And so we need to repent immediately and open the doors to our hearts right away that Christ might come in and dwell with us and we might enjoy the full blessing of His company. Now it's important to say that as she goes on here to to describe Solomon in these following verses, in verses 9 through 16, that her description is not simply her deciding in her heart to long for him again. And it's certainly not a response to his tactics. He didn't decide, you know what, I'm just going to back off and let her figure this out. I'm going to go to the garden and wait. And when she realizes I'm not there, oh, she'll come a-running. Solomon did not have a, a, a strategy to pursue reconciliation in marriage. Rather, he waited where he was supposed to be for the Lord to work in her heart. God works in her heart. God's Spirit convicts her and reminds her of her love for her husband and pushes her to feel sick with love and to be reminded of all the ways that she's fallen in love with this man, her husband, and the relationship that they should have. This is how God works in restoring broken marriages. He changes our hearts. Don't fall prey to the self-help books that tell you how to manipulate your spouse into giving you what you want and how to make your spouse a better husband or make your spouse a better wife or make them accommodate you better. Rather, we pray that God's Spirit would work in the heart of another sinner, even as He works in the heart of this sinner, that together we might love each other well in Christ. Now, young people, let me draw your attention uh, to verse 8 here. This is one of the most helpful things Uh, in this text, she cries out to the daughters of Jerusalem and says, if you find my beloved, tell him that I am sick with love. And then the daughters of Jerusalem later say, uh, who is this beloved of yours uh, that he's so special? Verse 9, what is your beloved more than another? What is your beloved more than another that you say this to us? Listen, what they're doing here is super helpful they are asking the sort of questions that cause our Shulamite bride to reflect on her love for Solomon. 
They say, Why, what's so special about your husband? What's so special about him that we should help you find him? This is in such contrast to the sort of uh, counsel we get from our friends in this day and age, isn't it? What happens when a man has a frustration with his wife and he goes out to have a drink with his buddies and they sit around the table and he begins talking about the difficulties and the nagging and the, and the problems and things aren't as passionate as they used to be and we disagree on things about the kids and about money and his friends all say, well, that's the problem with women, isn't it? Or a lady goes out to complain that her husband isn't fulfilling her and isn't leading well and isn't doing the sort of things that a Christian husband should do, and her friends respond by saying, well, you know, he seems like kind of a loser to me too. Because we're afraid of calling our friends out for their sin, and so we jump on the beat up the spouse who isn't here bandwagon and make them look bad. But what do the daughters of Jerusalem do here in this text? They say, whoa, tell us about your husband. Who is he? Why do you love him so much? Why should we help you find him? And they give her an opportunity to say, you know what? I remember who he is. He's amazing. I love him. The Lord gave him to me, and I picture him in this way. And then she goes on to describe him in verses 10 through 16. Beware, in other words, of friends who feed your frustration and your anger with your spouse. Far too many people are unwilling to ask the right questions or challenge our assumptions that I am right and she is wrong. We don't want to upset one another, and so we go along that they're married to a bad spouse, but that's not how the daughters of Jerusalem respond here in this text. And notice their final question. Look at their final question in chapter 6, verse 1. Where has he gone? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? This is such a helpful question. What they're asking her to contemplate, to think about for a moment is, what sort of character is your husband? What sort of a man is he? Where do you think you'll find him? Where do you expect him to be? And we find him exactly where we expect to find a man who understands the covenant as foundational to marital joy. He's in the garden. He's waiting for his wife. This might be a euphemism for the intimacy that's restored, but the point is that he's right where he belongs. He's waiting for his wife and for her bedroom to be open to him again. He's remaining faithful to his garden, not out finding another garden to enjoy. He is committed to his wife. He won't leave her or forsake her just because of an argument. And I dare say that she wouldn't leave him or forsake him if the tables were turned. That's a covenant relationship. This is covenantal language. Listen to what she says in verse 3. It really doesn't get much more explicit than this in the Song of Songs. She says, My beloved has gone down to the garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the garden and gather the lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. That's covenant language. Do you hear the Lord speaking to Israel? I will be your God, and you will be my people. Do you hear Ruth speaking to Naomi? Your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. 
Do you hear Christ speaking to you? To those who believe, you will be given the right to be called children of God. He will be your God, and you will be his sons and daughters. Hear Jesus saying to you, I will never leave or forsake you, no matter how sinful or how foolish you might be. My friends, the reason we celebrate marriage as a covenant relationship is because it reflects Christ's covenant relationship with us as church. When we sin and fail, Christ does not give us the cold shoulder. When we turn our backs on him, he does not retaliate against us. When we fear that our relationship with him has grown cold, perhaps too cold for recovery, his spirit inflames our hearts with love for him. When we look for him, we will always find him exactly where he says he will be waiting outside the door of our hearts, knocking, waiting for us to open to him. He'll never leave or forsake us. What a comfort in Christ, and truly what a comfort in Christian marriage, that the covenant means we will mess up, but we will remain faithful to one another. If you're not yet married, be aware you're a sinner, and the only option out there for you is another sinner. And all that that entails. Some of you are learning that afresh now in the newness of marriage. And some of us have been learning it and relearning it and relearning it for a long, long time. But the joy of Christian marriage is the foundation of the covenant. It's the promise of repentance and forgiveness because of Christ in Christian marriage. It's the reality that conflict makes us crazy. But that in Christ, Christian husbands and Christian wives show Christian love to each other in forgiveness. Well, one final question I want to ask you, and I'll answer it for us. If I can use the words of the daughters of Jerusalem to draw our attention upward towards the Lord. Church, what is your beloved more than another beloved? What is Jesus more than other loves? Who is he more than other gods? Our beloved is one like the Son of Man, with a long robe and a golden sash across his chest. The hairs of his head are white like wool, like snow, and his eyes are like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice is like the roar of many waters, and in his right hand are the seven stars, which are the seven spirits of the churches. And from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, which is able to penetrate to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and his face shines like the sun in its full strength. What is your beloved? He's gentle and lowly and meek and mild. He's tender and compassionate, offering water without price to any who thirst and bread without cost to any who are hungry. He bears our burdens and carries our iniquities. He takes away our illnesses and brings us peace. By his wounds we are healed. What is our beloved more than others? His death is our life. His grief is our joy. His sorrow is our happiness. His forsakenness is our welcome. His pain is our peace. What is our beloved more than any other? He's the creator and sustainer and redeemer and king. He's the prophet and priest and elder brother, the temple of God, the dwelling place place of God, the exact imprint of his nature in whom the fullness of deity is pleased to dwell bodily. 
He's the firstborn from the dead, the fairest of 10,000, the bright morning star, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the everlasting father. His kingdom has no end. His right is supreme. His rule is perfect. His wisdom is inscrutable, and his ways are past finding out. Who is your beloved? Church, he's your savior. He's the very God of very God, light of light, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. He is Jesus, and he has promised to save his people from their sins. And he's yours. He is your beloved, and you are his by covenant, by faith. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He promises to bring you with him to glory. Jesus is our heavenly bridegroom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. Would you encourage us in our marriages and other relationships? Help us, Lord, to avoid sinful and foolish responses to conflict, to pursue repentance and reconciliation immediately, and to remember the covenant vows which we take in marriage, which reflect the covenant you've made with us, what great love you've shown to us even when we are sinful and foolish. Indeed, we are sinful and foolish so often, and we ask that you would teach us according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.